Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show.
what you've been listening to, Season of the Witch, the 60s progressive rock classic created by Donovan and reimagined and reinterpreted dramatically and symphonically by Vanilla Fudge. And our guest on the show is Vanilla Fudge lead vocalist, keyboardist, composer, and arranger Mark Stein, who'll be talking about his current solo work, still drawing from and reinventing the past musically but now for a different time and different generations. Stein will also revisit memory lane experiences, making music with Alice Cooper, Dave Mason, Deep Purple, Michael Jackson, and many others. First, we'll hear Stein's visually dynamic Temptations, Ball of Confusion, reimagined politically for our current troubling time, and a selection as well on his new album, There's a Light. Then Mark Stein.
Hello. Hello, and welcome to the show. Oh, well, good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Okay. Why was Ball of Confusion a song that you wanted to reinterpret today, over half a century later, and for new generations? Well, um, Ball of Confusion is uh, actually a song that I produced for a movie called Rock on the Wall, which is uh, a documentary on, uh, you know, rock music. And uh, ironically, when I started putting songs together for an album, you know, that I called There's a Light, which is a collection of songs that reflects love and patriotism and social issues all intertwined into this message. Well, the confusion was, uh, you know, was was in the can. And uh, when I was putting songs together with my manager to put an album together, I said, hey, this thing, even though it's from way back in the early Temptations, uh, early 70s, the lyrics are so relative today and the tracks will sound so powerful. It just made a lot of sense. And it was ironic that uh, that it fit into the format of what I'm, what I'm doing with the album right now. So that's how it came about. And was there any creative consultations with The Temptations that went into your new version? No, no, not at all. No, it's just, uh, I've, you know, I've, I've, just, I've been blessed with this uh, ability to reimagine songs like I did with Vanilla Fudge and, and throughout my solo career. So, uh, yeah, no, it had nothing to do with The Temptations, although a long time ago I did uh, hang out with The Temps at the Ed Sullivan Show, singing with them backstage uh-huh. way back in the 60s or short which was a great time for me. But other than that, uh, your answer to that is no, I didn't collaborate with them on this new uh, release. And the songs you've been inspired to reinterpret and their roots in 70s rock, why has that been your creative choice of reinvention? Well, uh, if you're talking about songs like Vanilla Fudge, you keep me hanging on, uh, you know, I was, we were in the mode of uh, taking songs and, uh, breaking them down and reinventing them, uh, slowing songs down and adding a lot of dynamics and drama to them. And a song like You Keep Me Hanging On uh, came over the radio once and uh, just, you know, had this idea to slow it down and make it more soulful and uh, just uh, happen to just come up with this uh, approach to it, which ended up uh, being an iconic classic rock arrangement. So, uh, you know, we just, uh, we just actually... Played in New York at the Sony Hall, you know, Vanilla Fudge, and uh, the band still, you know, it's really well received, and uh, it's been a great trip. Well, in terms of that period of music, what do you feel has been the impact of the music in general, and especially today? Well, I think uh, in retrospect, if you look back at those early Vanilla Fudge records, you know, we kind of dared to be different back then because uh, at the time, uh, you know, if you didn't have a three-minute single, you weren't going to get played on, on AM radio. And then when we came out with these uh, long versions and, you know, symphonic psychedelic arrangements of of Beatles songs and Motown songs and what have you, uh, the advent of underground radio helped uh, to uh, reveal the creativity of bands like Manila Fudge and, and a lot of other bands of the time. And uh, I think... Uh, it's kind of like the beginning of uh, progressive rock because uh, you know there's so many uh, there's so many reflections of other bands like Uriah Heep and Deep Purple and bands like that and Sticks and even Led Zeppelin that uh, feel like they were influenced you know by Vanilla Fudge. So I think that's a pretty uh, specific place in history that we do have that we're hoping to one day you know get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because of those influences. Yeah. And what can you say about your memories and creative impact on you of collaborations with Alice Cooper, Dave Mason, and Deep Purple? Uh, well, I could say uh, playing with uh, Dave Mason, touring and recording was, was uh, probably one of the most fun things I ever did back then. And uh, in terms of Deep Purple, uh, we were friends from back in the late 60s, you know, ever since they came to see us, you know, in Europe. Actually, Deep Purple, once called the English Vanilla Fudge in the beginning of their career. Um, one night, you know, not too many years ago, uh, I went to see him in Pompano Amphitheater down in South Florida, and they, they invited me up to, to uh, jam on uh, Smoke on the Water, which was an incredible night. That was so much fun for me, and that was like a, a night in rock heaven. And actually, it kind of led to them inviting me and Vanilla Fudge to open for them at Radio City Musical, uh, you know, at that time. I think that was back in 2007. So that was a very, very cool event, um, you know. Um, and as far as Alice Cooper, uh, 
I had uh, done a Welcome to My Nightmare tour with with, uh, with with him and his band in the Southern Hemisphere. That was uh, throughout Australia and New Zealand. At the time, it was probably, the, I think it was the biggest grossing tour of all time in that part of the world. So uh, that was certainly a, a unique experience for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I can go on and on. <laughs> and what about recording with Michael Jackson? Oh, that was, uh, <clears throat> what a crazy night that was. Uh, you want to hear the story? I'll tell yeah, it Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I was recording with Dave uh, in L.A. one night, I think it was around 1980, and I was uh, taking a break and went out into the lobby, and uh, I happened to see <clears throat> Michael Jackson uh, leaning up against the soda machine, <clears throat> so I uh, I introduced myself, and, and at the time, uh Michael had the, the Off the Wall album out, which was a multi-platinum record with a lot of really cool R&B grooves. And, and we just happened to have a track that we were doing called Save Me that had that same kind of groove that was on, on his current uh, record. So I invited him into the studio to check it out. And he, uh, he said, yeah, man, come on, let me check it out. He, he came in and we, we, we put the track up and he, he started dancing around, snapping his fingers and was smiling and getting into it. And I said, hey, Dude, why don't you go out into the studio and, uh, you know, there's a mic out there with some earphones, man. Put them on and why don't you just scat and sing to the track? So he did. He went out and that's exactly what he did. And in one take, it was just the most magical moment of of the night, of, of the year, of my life, actually. <laughs> because he was so amazing. And he came back and uh, did an amazing job. And everybody was so excited. That was like uh, a night in... Uh, Really, it was like a heavenly night for everybody. And he was so cool, you know, and uh, he loved it. And um, he uh, just said, okay, well, I got to go back and meet with my family. The Jacksons were down the hall, and I guess he was doing a project in another studio. You know, there's a, there a lot of studios. It was like a multi-studio uh, venue there. But what a night that was. And uh, it was just so exciting. So uh, anybody wants to hear a song called Save Me, they can... You can just Google it, and you'll hear Dave Mason and Michael Jackson and Mark Stein, you know, all singing and, and playing Hammond on that track. And, uh, hey, that's a good one. That's, I got some pretty good bragging rights there, you know. And what can you say about your first solo album, There's a Light, and what's been described as, quote, what America has become and may or may not face in its future? What can you say about that? <clears throat> well, uh, again, uh, there's a light. It's a collection of songs that uh, that I believe will take you on a journey of love and uh, you know and and social issues that uh, social issues we've all been dealing with. Uh, you know, the songs on there, it's like "We Are One," which is the first single off it, which reflects the you know the time during the pandemic. The songs like "Racism," uh, covers like "Ball of Confusion," and I did a cover of "People Got to Be Free." And I, I actually closed the album with my blues uh, version of America the Beautiful, which uh, reflected a time during 9-11. And uh, so we're proud of the record. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting a lot of really great reviews from it. And uh, you can get it on all the, you know, the current contemporary digital platforms like Apple Music and the Amazon and uh, iTunes. Now, I'd like to ask you about some of what you've included visually, those striking visuals, which, of course, the listeners can't see, like the mass street protests you've included, Black Lives Matter, and signs that say, I want to be heard, the time is now, and stop hate. Imperialism, joblessness, uprising, mounting bills, and protests against war and prisons. Yeah. Well, again, because of the social issues and uh, that we've dealt with the past, um, you know, and 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 also uh, there's a lot of positive feeling in the album too. Actually, there's a line in "We Are One" uh, that that's uh, there's a light. It's called from one of the lyrics. It goes like this: "There's a light that burns so deep within us. If only we could find a way to keep it turned on. It's like a spiritual thing. I think that we all possess, and if we could just." you know, focus, you know, on the positive side of spirituality. I think uh, going forward, things would be a lot better for everybody. Mm. So uh, that's, that's where I'm at. Yeah, it's just life. I mean, it's what we're all dealing with on one level or another, everything you just mentioned. It's something that's pretty much 
been part of our history from the 60s and 70s and is still prevalent today. You know, all these things you're talking about, and uh, we just don't ever seem to get it right as humanity. I mean, let's face it, we're, we're all experiencing a great divide in this country, politically, economically, you know, the left, the right, day in and day out. And, uh, hey, until we get it right, I don't know. We just got to keep trying. But the uh, ball of confusion reflects uh, you know, every subject matter that we deal with day in and day out. And what would you hope new generations to understand about your music in contrast to your original compositions back then? Well, I hate to say I hope we learn a lesson from everything that we've had a tough time experiencing, you know, over the decades. But uh, if we don't, you know, it's really a shame because I think to this point, on a lot of levels, we haven't learned from our past experiences because we're still dealing with uh, with all these issues. You know, I mean, I'm hoping one day, you know, as uh, time goes on, that things will improve and we learn to love one another and respect one another more. I mean, this goes all the way back to the 60s. It's uh, like a song by a band that was the Youngbloods, and the lyrics kind of went, uh, come on, everybody, smile on your brother. Everybody get together, try and love one another right now. That was like a big song back in the late 60s. So why can't we just do that now? Why can't we just think on that for the future? Respect one another, and uh, that's, that's, that's what I think it's all about. And what has been the impact on your life and music as part of Vanilla Fudge and the creation of the Vanilla Fudge experience? Well, uh, Vanilla Fudge... Uh, you know, it was a, a seminal moment in my young life. I must have been maybe 19 or 20 years old when uh, when that first album was in the top five around the world. Uh, it brought me into prominence. Uh, you know, uh, the band had uh, broken up the first time in 1970. It was relatively short-lived. It was kind of tough to handle first fame. And uh, when, we, when we got back together the second time around, you know, uh, back in the 70s, it was it was more of a work ethic and instead of an ego effort. So it was more of a fun thing to earn a good living and do and do what you love to do. And that that's what's that's the thing, man. If you're a if you're a professional musician and you can earn a living throughout your career, and I've had a long one. I've been fortunate enough to play with not only Vanilla Fudge but with so many diverse artists in different roles. So if you can, you know, stay in that business and and still keep your family intact and, and do what you love doing and, and survive, well, then you're a really lucky person. And how would you compare the liberating music energy of the vintage rock generation back then to the corporate-controlled music industry today? Uh, well, in the 60s, you weren't boxed in. You know, It was a time of eclecticism. In other words, you could be as diverse as you wanted to be and... and uh, Again, I, I speak about this a lot. The advent of underground radio in the late 60s allowed artists to be totally creative because you would always get played. If you had a five-minute song, a four-minute song, a seven-minute long symphonic arrangement, you know, you would get played. But uh, in today's world, you had mentioned it's like corporate. You want to keep you focused in one, one musical direction. If, if you go to like a concert, it's going to be like a heavy rock band. It's going to be all heavy rock bands, all heavy metal bands. You know, all, if you go to a, 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 you know, like an MOR, middle of the road, you're going to, you're going to see artists that uh, crooners and uh, softer music. But back in the 60s, um, it was all different types of music all on one different show. And, and radio stations played all kinds of diverse music. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a much more creative time on that level. But today it's more of a stringent kind of affair. Okay, thank you so much, Mark Stein, for calling into the show. Well, well it's my pleasure. I hope I uh, answered your questions the best I could, and uh, I hope people will pick up my new effort. There's a light. Thank you so much. Bye. And There's a Light is a Deco Entertainment release. And now on Arts Express, a special presentation about a new film, an in-depth cinematic exploration of Newark's legendary Amiri Baraka family. The film is Why Is We Americans? And the following is Conversations 
with the late poet, playwright, and author's son, Amiri Baraka Jr., and the filmmakers, and including discussions of the Newark Uprising of 67 and the city's current narrative of revolutionary principles with each generation as a struggle against oppression through the triumphs and tragedies of the Baraka family. Why is we Americans? Are there any American poets in here? Why is we Americans? I want to hear an American poem. Boop, 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 boop. In 1967, there were major uprisings in Newark. They busted in there like gangbusters, shot up the whole street. We don't call them riots, we call them a rebellion. People had just had enough. They weren't going to take anymore. This absolute chaos. And then martial law was declared. That's not a riot. That's a rebellion. How many times have I been to jail and in courts? Four or five times. My children have all been to jail. We're a nation already without political power and military power. In captivity by people who have a totally different culture than we have. We will make mistakes. We will get it wrong. But we have a right to make mistakes. We have a right to get it wrong. We have a right to fall down. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Amiri Baraka was an internationally known poet, playwright, political activist, and theorist. But as prolific and influential as he was, the rest of his family, including his wife Amina and children Ross and Mitty, are just as special. A recent documentary called Why Is We Americans provides a portrait of the Baraka family and how they helped shape modern Newark, New Jersey, the nation, politics, arts, and subsequent generations. I'm happy to be talking with the directors of the film, Why Is We Americans, Udi Aloni and Ayana Morris. I'm also happy to be speaking with one of the subjects of Why Is We Americans, Amiri Baraka Jr., known as Midi. Hi, Udi. Hi. And hi, Ayana. Hello, Jack. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. And hi, Midi. Peace, peace, peace. Thank you. Where does the title of the film come from? Why is We Americans? It's one of the most beautiful poems of uh, Amiri Baraka. Why is We American? <laughs> yes, and it's at, at the beginning of the film, we have a mm-hmm. cut where Amiri is at Deaf Poetry Jam from HBO and show is Raz, and his uh, poem is called American Poem, and they're like kind of like a call and response. And they're both speaking to the conditions of why Black people are actually Americans. And then they want to hear some American story that's real for for Black people and oppressed people. Where did Amiri get his artistic and political sensibility from? Or, or was it always there? Well, my dad was raised by Everett Jones in, in Newark. And he was a part of the, the Beat Generation with Allen Ginsberg and those folks over in New York in the beginning. He eventually moved to Newark and met my mom, and she was a part of the Nation of Islam and a part of the movement before my dad was a part of that. And then those two got together, and, you know, history is is made. I mean, he became part of the Black Power Movement. He started the US organization, a committee for unified Newark, and all these organizations did was to try to change the conditions of our people inside in Newark, New Jersey. That's basically where he really got to start from. It's great in the film, we see how each child was influenced by the political and artistic sensibilities of the parents. And and also, in particular, Mother Amina. It's so great to see her foregrounded. How did Amina and Amiri meet? Right. My dad was into poetry. My mom was a a, a dancer at arts high school. And she, again, was in a, the, the nation. And she was into the, you know, the movement. Of course, they connected during the work, during the work of, you know, changing the lives of people in the city. When they, you know, when they connected at the time, um, Newark was going through a sort of like a renaissance a little bit in terms of uh, Black people trying to get self-knowledge and learn about themselves. And my mom was already dealing with Black people. My dad sort of came from the Beat Generation. He was dealing with Allen Ginsberg and those folks. So my mother kind of introduced my dad to Newark. So she was like his first intro to Newark. And during that work and during that time, you know, they they fell in love. 
And she she acted in his plays. Yes, and some of them. Yes, and and maybe Ayana, you can help us with this. How was the nineteen sixty seven rebellion in New York a turning point for the Barakas? Tensions was bubbling in Newark at the time. So the rebellion was just the outward expression of what people were already feeling internally. And the Barakas was a major part of creating culture. My favorite line from the movie is that Amina says that they use art as a weapon. And, you know, they were writing poetry, creating movements and organizing people to get them involved into no black culture, black history, to be involved in the politics of North. So when the rebellion happened, they understood that this is their opportunity to uh, to really make a change in the city and to help help elect black leadership to move the city forward. I want to add that remember that Amina had Rigabelagi as a baby then when it happened and the police was very close to murder Amiri, like they beat him. If people wouldn't be witness, probably they would kill him. And mm. then she was looking for him when he was all beaten and they arrested him. And in a funny way, the way he was released from the prison then, it's so, such a beautiful story because she recognized that he was friend with Ellen Ginsburg. She called Ellen Ginsburg. Anger was saying maybe the police in New Jersey are not so important. So we call Jean Paul Sartre, the philosopher, the French yeah. philosopher, called Newark Police Department and he released Amiri Baraka. <laughs> so, well, Mitty, how did the echoes of that rebellion filter down to the next generation, your generation? The, the film shows that you and Ross were not exactly quiet college boys. <laughs> exactly. As a matter of fact, but when I first entered Howard University, uh, my brother had an organization called Black Near Force on campus already. And that was just an organization where, again, we, we, we equipped each other with, you know, knowledge of self and, and read different books. And, and we would physically be fit and ready for, you know, we was all in college. So we was all looking forward to the revolution. So everybody was, <laughs> you know, gearing up towards that moment. The rebellion kind of took the Baraka name and my dad to a whole different level because there was a time, I think it was Time Magazine, where he was on the front cover of the magazine with his head busted, uh, bleeding. Uh, and that went, you know, that was viral back then. Yeah. That actually put a spotlight on North and what was going on in the city. And from this day forward, I can't, you know, stop hearing about the stories of the rebellion and, and the US organization and, and uh, uh, the African free school and all of the stuff that came out of that, the rebellion for uh, black people in the city. So, you know, eventually we started our own stuff and we started doing exactly what my dad and mom was been doing. Well, now eventually, of course, your brother, Ross Baraka, was elected mayor in 2014 and reelected in 2018. But that was only after a lot of electoral losses for a decade or two before that. We have a pretty sophisticated audience, politically sophisticated audience. Yeah. So I was curious, what did your parents feel as radicals about Ross's entry into electoral politics? Well, we always, believe it or not, my dad always believed in the ballot over the bullet. So we always believed in electoral politics. The problem with electoral politics, it was only two choices, Democrat and Republican. So the choice that we wanted to give people was independence. We wanted to give people a choice of themselves. I was in school when my brother first started the campaign. He ran for mayor against Sharp James. But when I came out of school, when I graduated, I came in to help when ran, we ran at large and we actually won that election. We won, we, we won that election at large. Um, and Newark has this undemocratic rule, this rule called a runoff, where you got to get 50 plus 1%, even though if you win the, the election, during the general campaign, you, you got to run again, which means that you need more money, you need more energy, you need more people, and all of this is, is so undemocratic. So we had to go through that election twice. You know, we, we didn't have enough money to sustain, and we lost. And, but we learned lessons from that, and we built our organization, made it stronger and more sophisticated. And um, the next go-round, we ran at uh, for South Ward, and we won. Did you know you were going to win in 2014? Absolutely, we knew we was going to win. Absolutely. 
I wanted to add to that, but uh, we had gave Raz a microphone and a small GoPro camera to like record a video diary. And in one of the scenes that he recorded, he speaks about his father holding uh, literature from the campaign on his deathbed and, show- and showing that how proud he was of him and how much he was in support of them running for electoral politics. Right. That was one of the last images I have of my dad in uh-huh. Bethesda wow. Hospital of him holding, you know, the campaign lit in the bed. Yep. He had a stack of it, actually. You know, one of one of the themes that is embedded implicitly in the film, and you, you do beautifully in the film, you show that there's no separation among politics, the arts, and life among the Barakas. It's all one big stew, and it's it runs throughout the whole film. And the arts were a big part of the campaign for mayor and your vision for Newark, wasn't it, Mitty? Absolutely. Um, we all are artists in our own right. I, I, I took the, you know, the hip-hop way. My brother was into poetry, as my dad was, of course. And we actually, my dad brought folks you know, in to, to actually help our campaign forward to give some notoriety to my brother. And we used the poetry. We had poetry readings as fundraisers. We brought artists in to get out the vote. We used some of the artists to get some petitions signed. So we, we intertwined the arts to make people understand that this is a part of your life. And without politics, you will never have the power and a say-so and the, and, and the self-determination that you need to actually enjoy it. As documentarians, there's no way you could tell this story without interweaving arts and poetry and, and culture and music in it. It's just, then that's not a real story about the Baraka family. And what I appreciate about Udi as a mentor and a friend is that he understood that and he was very insistent about making sure that the cut of the film has a poetic and a jazzy rhythm. One of the times that Ross lost an election early on, you you have a scene where Amina is starting to tear up and then she says, but these are tears of fire. Mm -hmm. And that's really quite a phrase. She was as good with words as Amiri, wasn't she? Absolutely. My mom is a great poet. She actually is the one that to to inspire us to do what we do um, in the house. And she would actually probably, she would give us more direction than my dad in terms of uh, where and how we should be doing things. I have to say I was bowled over by Amina. She's so frank in the movie. It's very rare for a person to talk about really deeply personal aspects of one's family and beliefs on camera, and even to admit openly the mistakes in one's past. And it it just seems like she's so wise and seen so much tragedy and triumph. Was it hard to get her to open up to the camera? No, not at all. Not at all. (laughs) No, no. The day that her Udi said that, I'm not gonna lie, I was so nervous. But when she started talking, like, everybody just shut up. That's, that's how it happens. Everybody's <laughs> not quiet. We just let her speak. I, I think Amina is the reason I, in the end, I, I chose to that I can do this film. This honesty, and honesty is go also against us. When she's not happy with us, we feel it. It's a, a woman who went through so much more than I would never experience, as you said, in the trauma part and in victory part, in, in, in life that is beyond life. And it's so impressive. And the true, like the way she speaks the truth on your face. And it's not always easy, but it's so beautiful. And for me, but Amina, because she came from a very Marxist background, for her, the part that I'm part of a movement of solidarity and understand the concept of privilege and understand the issue of class struggle, she invited me in as equal in the good and the bad mm-hmm. part. And that was very, very powerful for me. Yeah, she seems just absolutely transparent. And uh, according to Sonia Sanchez, who's depicted in the film, it was actually Amina who moved Amiri towards a more Marxist viewpoint. Yep. Was was that a gradual process? How did that happen, do you think? I think with the influence inside the house, her being, you know, the person who she is, they would they would have discussions, political discussions, as well as raise the kids and talk about some of these the, the issues that affect us, not just as a family, but as a community. You know, they go back and forth and they would struggle just like two people would struggle in a debate. And I think my mom, you know, she's very strong-minded and strong-willed. My dad is too, not taking nothing away from him, but 
I just think my mom influenced him into going into that direction later in his life. And uh, I think that's where they found a, a com- more common ground. She just has that power where when she speaks, you just listen. <laughs> yeah. I think this tension was fascinating also for Ayana and me because this tension within the family that moved from black nationalism to uh, in, uh, social internationalism and, and understand over time to look background that the both sources are important, that you don't give one over the other, that both of them have to speak in the same time and sometimes they contradict each other. And really, I think for me and for Ayana, the big success of the film that maybe make it to some people harder, to some beautiful, as she said, it's the rhythm of this family. This family moved by the rhythm, the speech, the energy. It's, it's, it's a rhythm of politics, of art, of activism that if you don't cut a film like that, it's really just telling another boring history because it's, it's in the way that the, the, the language creates the power. Mm-hmm. And, and you you hear Russ you hear Russ speeches in front of people you you mesmerize it's so powerful Absolutely. because it's a poetry even the political speeches are poetry. Absolutely, Mitty, would you call yourself a Marxist? And and does Raz and can he use that word in electoral politics? I wouldn't call myself a Marxist at all. I, I mean, what I would say is that you know my mother. And father always tried to advance the ideological like beliefs. And and living in Newark, you had no choice but to do that because we had all these black power movements and all of that. We had the black and brown uh, convention that we, they had in Gary, and um, we had black people elected in office, and we still in the same condition. So we had to figure out why are we still in the same condition? We got black people in charge of everything. That was a part of it, just the condition. And, you know, where we were at in North New Jersey, that, that helped push that idea, ideology to a different level in terms of Marxist um, kind of thinking. But I, don't, I wouldn't consider myself that at all. Uh-huh. As directors, Udi and Ayana, you had, as you say, you had a lot to choose from in terms of themes and how you were going to shape the picture. And what really hit me was Roz saying, we have the right to make mistakes, to get it wrong, to fall down and get back up. Can you talk more about that? I think it was so beautiful that we put it on the trailer. We ended the trailer with it. So many people came to Newark as they know better. They come very patronizing from outside, kind of a kind of in a progressive liberal concept and they say, we'll tell you how to run it. We'll tell you how to run it. That each one have like either his Hollywood uh, uh, fascination or to gain some uh, personal gain from it. And and people in solidarity and they have to learn it. And, uh, and I think also Salah Ahmed speak about it a lot. And this is the practice I try to do. When you're in solidarity, you come to be behind the people you're in solidarity with, not the front of them. You come to be behind and ask where I can help, not I will tell you what to do. So I think this call of people from from a place that said, we do our mistake, we learn by ourselves, because this is our process. And the other thing is not that the people who come from outside make them not make mistakes. Usually the people who come from outside make much bigger mistakes and they're just in denial of it. Guys, I have to to go, unfortunately. Can I ask you one quick question, Mitty, before you go? Absolutely. Is Ross up for re-election? And if not, how does the family intend to continue the political and artistic Yes, activism? he is up for re-election as we speak. Um, okay. This is election year right now, so we are in the middle of a campaign. Yep. Okay. Well, f- f- thanks. Thanks so much. And Thank uh, you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Mitty, so much. As we wrap up, where can we see the film and is it available on DVD? Friday, the, it's open in person IFC in New York and next month in uh, Los Angeles and other theaters. And uh, more people will come and support us. Uh, it will open in more and more theaters. And only after it will be DVD and streamers and all that. But first of all, it's both theatrical release in a very difficult time of Corona. Right. And we hope that people with mask and vaccine will get into the theater and enjoy our film with us. And anything else any of you would like to add? Support this film. It's important that we support films that show Black families who are activists, who are 
positive influences who provide hope if we want to push the narrative of and the portrayal of this community I think that you have to support a film like this in order to do so and it's a beautiful film you know it's a love letter to Newark and to the Baraka family and and giving them homage for all the things they've done for the community well thanks so much I've been speaking with Udi Alani and Ayana Morris, the directors of a recent documentary about the Baraka family, Why Is We Americans? And we've also been talking with the son of Amina and Amira Baraka, Midi Baraka. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And Is We Americans is released by Corinth Films. And we'll go out now on the show with poet, songwriter, political journalist, analyst, and self-described digital street philosopher, Caitlin Johnstone, with her poem, Break Free from the Corporate Prison. This is not a sane way for people to live. They herd us into classrooms where our minds are pressed into uniform shapes, learning lessons which organise clean-cut, authorised thoughts into neat little boxes. And then they herd us into cubicles where we turn gears to turn millionaires into billionaires. We go home and our minds are herded into advertising that makes us want to consume, news media that makes us believe our government is virtuous, and TV shows where paid actors play out scenes which convince us that capitalism is working out perfectly fine. Try to get away from the phoniness by talking to a real person, and it turns out that they've been processed through the same system. But the rewards of moving inside their painted lanes are so great and the penalties for stepping outside them are so severe. The closest most ever come to authenticity is learning how to fake their way through society while secretly knowing it's all bullshit. But we also can't keep living like this. This machine we keep fueling is filling the oceans with poison and filling the air with greenhouse gases while killing the trees and driving humanity toward nuclear war. The lanes they have painted for us have formed a funnel into our own extinction. So those lanes are necessarily going to have to become moot. All the societal structures which have been put in place to incentivize us towards producing and consuming are gonna have to fall away. Either because society collapses or because we changed our ways quickly and drastically enough to avert disaster. Either way, this march away from our own authenticity is about to end. So why not start now? Why not take off that tight suit and stop acting out this masochistic charade? Stop marching inside their lines to the beat of their drum. Stop relating to life using dead ideas you were handed by other people for the convenience of the powerful. Start dancing your own dance in your own way. I don't know how to dance your authentic dance, so I can't tell you how to do that. But you do. You know. Underneath all the societal impositions and expectations and pressures and demands and fear and aversion and uncertainties, you know. The instructions are written upon the core of your being and if you get sincerely curious about them, they will show themselves to you bit by bit as needed. Once you move past all the voices telling you you mustn't and you shouldn't, you will find your own inner truth is so much wiser and healthier than society's dead ideas about how we all ought to live. Trust yourself to be bravely and defiantly true to the truth, clear-eyed rebel. I trust you. Life trusts you. You can trust yourself. Climb up over that slaughterhouse rail and go live a life uninhibited by the painted lanes of a servile society for the good of our species and for the honour of your own majesty. 
leave the cage they built for you in a ditch by the freeway and stride out boldly into uncharted lands beneath the open sky. And you can find more of Caitlin Johnstone's work, daily writings about the end of illusions, at CaitlinJohnstone.com. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.